What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello everybody and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, we live in the beautiful modern era of digital everything. I mean, we are entirely a digital medium here on the podcast, but I think today we need to explore the good old days. Back when they had not digital podcasts. Yeah, not digital podcasts, which was just people shouting in the streets, and you're like, (laughs) Oh, huh, this guy shouts pretty good. <laughs> and you hang around sometimes. I'm going to stand in this spot next week and listen to him again. Yeah, exactly. Like when he, it, it was such a pain to go every Monday morning to the town, to like the town square for like the, the political commentary of the, of the guy on the street corner. Now you can get it from the comfort of your own home. <laughs> the town crier. There we go. That's what they're called. I had to think for a minute. Well, the town crier was the news. I mean, I guess the town crier was the news. I guess there are news podcasts. We did an episode on town criers. We did. Yeah, podcasts, I guess, were just some dude at, like, the pub who was just, like, slurring words about whatever he was talking about, but you couldn't tell because he was really drunk because it was olden times. We count on Chris to edit out our slurring. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, our question this week is, what if everything man-made was made of paper? No fancy building materials, no plastics, no metals, no whatever the heck other things are made out of. Everything that, if we want to make it as a human race... We got it. We, we built things out of paper. It's only paper. So like everything natural still exists. It's just that we can't use that stuff to build things. Yeah, we just never think of it. I don't know. For some reason, we never like <laughs> see a tree yeah, and decide to do anything aside from turning it into paper, I guess. But <laughs> Yeah, paper products were just really, really popular. So like when we would try to make them, you know, you try to make it out of other things and the people are like, no, I'm just not buying that. So it just never, nothing non-paper ever got developed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's our story. We're sticking to it. Except for because we were saying that uh fasteners we're allowing fasteners right like tape oh yes oh yes 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 arts and crafts type fasteners like staples like tape yeah staples tape glue those are the main ones not like fancy glue but like you know glue stick elmer's glue that kind of stuff you know the things you use for crafts yeah yeah and and you know and of course we we i didn't do anything at least anything that was like oh well we have staples so i'm just gonna make a whole lot of staples and squish them together and now i got metal again right (laughs) well they just make the whole plane out of staples machine made out of staples i think they get it chris why don't you get us started yes so we're looking at paper and i thought the natural thing to look at for paper were airplanes because paper airplanes are a thing and i wanted to see like obviously we're not going to have our normal airplanes but can we still have like a a big airplane that can like carry someone and fly somewhere and like that will be a mode of transportation so the first thing i looked at or the first step i took was to look at the current largest paper airplane it was built in 2013 by the this is a german word that i don't know how to pronounce bra braunschweig if only we had a german <laughs> braunschweig <laughs> well, yeah, institute of technology i can uh, copy and paste it Quick, Marcus, consult. Um, yeah, it's gonna be Braunschweig. There we go, Braunschweig, <laughs> or Braunschweig. It could, it could be. It could also be Weig at the end. Weig or Weig. Weig. W e i g for our actual German listeners <laughs> who know German better than me. It's a it's a technical school. That's all you need to know in Germany. 
they built it. It's the largest paper aircraft was the, I guess, the technical category that it was in. And it was 59 foot, it had a 59 foot wingspan. It weighed 53 pounds and it ended up flying 59 feet, which isn't very far. It's got a 53, it could fall over 59 feet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. But it was made of nothing but paper and glue, which is actually pretty impressive, I think. Even just to like make it stay together, I guess. I'm not exactly sure how they launched it. They didn't really say in the articles that I found. Like normally you just throw a paper airplane, but something that big, I don't think you could. But obviously 59 feet isn't very far. It's not like you're going to use that to fly anywhere. So next I want to look at like what the farthest paper airplane actually is, like the record for a normal size paper airplane. And then like compare that, maybe like scale it up or something. So the current record for a paper airplane is the distance of a paper airplane was set in, it's actually pretty recent, April 16th, 2022. So like a couple months ago for us, it was set in Korea by Kim Kyu-tae. He threw the paper airplane 252 feet and seven inches. And the design for the paper airplane he used is called, it's something called the Suzanne. It actually looks pretty simple. If you see like a picture of it, it looks simple. I think the the folds are a little more complex than it actually looks, but it has like minimal tape. And then there's like really, really precise folds and angles. I think the top wings are like angled 150 angle, 150 degrees from each other. And it's like optimized. So I was thinking like if we could scale this up, it's probably not like doesn't scale linearly, I assume. But just to get like a rough number, so they made the this the Suzanne out of uh, A4 paper, um, and then based on the folds, it was like a little shorter because they like folded it in. So the length of the Suzanne is about eight inches long, and then it flies. That means that it flies 388 times its length. So if we assume that we're making uh, an airplane, like a bigger airplane the size of like a commercial airplane, like a Boeing 747. Um, Actually, no. So I'm assuming we're not making that because that's harder to do. So I'm saying (laughs) we're not making a a full-size commercial airplane. We're going to make a smaller, still like a big airplane, but like a more personal-sized one. So I picked uh, the Cessna 172. Um, It's like just a personalized one-engine airplane. It's 27 feet long, and um, that means if you scale it up, that our paper airplane would theoretically be able to fly 10,400 feet, which is about 11 and a half New York City blocks, which is a decent distance. It's not really that practical for like traveling long distance, but... I mean, why do why would planes need to be practical for traveling long distances? That's hardly what we use them for. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Seems like a corner case to me. Now... That's just scaling it up linearly, and like I said, I don't think that's necessarily how it works. And there is like one major limiting factor that I haven't really addressed yet. But so there are four major forces acting on an airplane: there's gravity, lift, drag, and thrust. Gravity is constant, so we have no control over that unless we go to a different planet or something. And then the Suzanne's design actually like it's meant to minimize the drag and maximize the lift. Uh, that's how you get the far distance. 
the one force that not, we're not really addressing is the thrust. So, like, normally a paper airplane doesn't really have any thrust. It's just the initial thrust of throwing the, the paper airplane, and then it just does its own thing. Which means that it's basically just a glider, because we don't have, like, an engine on it. Our engine would have to be made out of paper, and that doesn't really work. So, basically, uh, a paper airplane is just a glider. So, I, I decided to look at, like, gliders, because gliders are an actual thing that we use to fly long distances. They actually exist. So... I looked at world records for gliders, and the furthest distance traveled for uh, with a glider was 1,869 miles. It was set by Klaus Ullmann in 2003, and he used uh, he went to like South America and he used um, mountain waves in South America. So mountain waves basically they just provide strong gusts of wind like that are produced from the mountains. That's the furthest distance. Another record that I looked at was the flight time. So the longest flight time for a glider is 70 hours. It was set in 1961 in Hawaii. And 1961, that's like kind of a long time ago. You wonder like, why hasn't it been broken again? Well, because nobody's got 70 hours to kill just going nowhere. Right. I mean, that's (laughs) basically the reason. (laughs) Like... The way that gliders are, basically, um, you can just fly them, like, indefinitely, kind of. Like, as long as you, like, know where, like, how to get the lift and where to get the lift. It's pretty easy, like, somewhat, you have to be somewhat skilled as a pilot, but you don't have to be, like, incredibly skilled as a pilot. Uh, So it's basically just, like, becomes a feat of endurance and, like, you have to be strong-willed to, like, actually do it. And, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So that's why no one has broken that record. But that's like, those are the world records. And obviously those are really high numbers, but common glider flights are actually still pretty long. So like they can go for around 200 to 300 miles and they can last for like five or seven hours. Those are pretty common numbers for gliders. Now, gliders are a fairly slow mode of transportation because they go like, I think that ends up being around like 30 or 40 miles per hour. Obviously, because you don't have like an engine or anything, so you have nothing to push you. You're just gliding. But it does still work as a mode of transportation, and it I think it's a very like reasonable, if you have nothing else, because we don't have anything else with just paper, it's a reasonable option. Yeah, our paper car doesn't have much thrust either, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that got me thinking, because like, how do we... I came back to the, the question of like, how do we get initial speed for our, our paper airplane? Because, like, we're not going to throw a full-sized airplane. And the way that they launch these gliders is basically, there's two different methods. I think one of the more common methods is called aero towing. Uh, so they'll basically just tow it with a different, like a, a normal airplane. They'll, like, attach it to, like, a winch or something and then fly it up and then let it go when it's in the air. Guys, I've invented a new flying machine. Admittedly, it does require another functioning flying machine to work. (laughs) Exactly. And we don't have that flying machine because we don't have airplanes with engines anymore. So that option is not going to work for us. The other method that they have, we could potentially do. So it's called the... Actually, I don't... I forgot to write down what it's called. But they basically use a winch that's attached to an engine. And it, like, pulls the glider, like, on a runway and to a fast enough speed where the glider can produce lift and then take off on its own. 
Again, that requires an engine, which we don't have, but it doesn't require being in the air. And we do have things that go fast on the ground that aren't man-made, like horses. So horses can run, run up to 55 miles per hour. Um, they might, I guess, theoretically, if they're dragging a glider around, they might run a little bit slower. But our glider is made of paper, and paper is super lightweight. So uh, to get the glider to get off the ground, it really only needs to be going about 30 to 40 miles per hour, which I think our horses can achieve. They'll basically just, uh, like, they'll stu- still use the winch, they'll run with the glider, and then it'll, it'll be basically just be like a, a kite that they're pulling. Uh, and then they'll detach it once uh, it's in the air. Now, we've solved, we've we've gotten our glider in the air. The next question is, would our paper airplane be strong enough to actually endure these speeds? It's not that fast, but it is still kind of fast, and paper isn't necessarily the strongest material. So I, I started to look into that, and the strongest paper material that I found is called graphene oxide paper, which is actually extremely strong because it's like similar to diamond, I guess. And I started to like look more into what it actually was, and the question came up as like, is this actually considered technically paper? So I looked up the definition of paper, and the Oxford definition of paper is a material manufactured in thin sheets from the pulp of wood or other fibrous substances used for writing, drawing, or printing on, or as wrapping material. I like they threw wrapping material in there as like, <laughs> we're, we're not going to get away with this like loophole for wrapping paper. Like we have <laughs> right. to specify. You have to include it. <laughs> um, so the main things there were like the, the pulp of wood or the fibrous, the fibrous substance is this graphene oxide paper that... So graphene oxide paper is made through the evaporation of graphene oxide solution, and then they like it like turns into a mem- membrane from that. So it's not actually made from wood, and it's not a fibrous substance. So according to this definition, it's not actually technically paper, even though paper is in the name. How how dare they betray you? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it happens a lot. I'm gonna say that we're not allowed to use this graphene oxide paper, but. There is another thing called nanopaper, which um, is actually still made from cellulose. So like cellulose is what normal paper is made from because it's from wood. It's actually made from cellulose nanofibrils, which is, I guess just means like super, super tiny fibers of cellulose. And normally like paper fibers, like you make paper by like mechanically pulping wood and then you have these fibers that are sort of big. And they're like attached to each other, but because the fibers are big, they're like not as strong as they could be. The way that you make this nano paper is you use enzymes to digest the wood. It breaks down the wood into really, really, really small fibers, and the small small fibers means that there's more, uh, like they're connected. There's more bonds between the fibers, which basically makes the paper a lot stronger. It's actually 214 times stronger than normal paper, and they say it's stronger than cast iron. So with this, this is technically paper because it's fiber and it's super strong. I think it can endure the 30 to 40 mile per hour speeds and we can get our airplane, our paper airplane into the air and it can fly for pretty long distances and carry people in theory. In practice, it's probably a lot harder. I only researched (laughs) this for like a couple hours and didn't do any prototypes. So 
don't hold me to that. <laughs> I didn't prototype this. Can't confirm. Yeah. I did not go and buy nano paper and build an airplane. I and did then not hire a team of horses. Yeah, but theoretically it works. Marcus, what did you do? So I too was looking at our modern conveniences that we would be without if we everything was made out of paper, and I did want to see if we could still live in this digital age we have of computers. I wanted to see if we could make a function computer out of just paper parts so that we don't get sent back to the, well, I guess 1800s, like, <laughs> it's not that long ago we didn't have computers. So we can still make this podcast. Yeah, can we, can, can <laughs> we make this podcast out of paper? That would have been a much better way to phrase that. So, kind of, to make a computer, basically, the way I looked at it is, one, you need to be able to have data, you need to be able to do stuff with said data, and you need to be able to, you know, power your computing machine as kind of additional bit. So really, it's like, hey, do I have information, and can I do stuff with the information that I want? I'm going to start off with uh, storing data, because this is one we've already solved. Actually, older computers would store and read data from punch cards. So literally just like a rectangular piece of paper, um, it would have a bunch of rows and columns where you could put up to, you could like punch a whole little little holes in them, and the computer would be able to, you know, suck it up and get the information out of that punch card based on what holes you punched. Um, basically, the holes in the paper were equivalent of bytes. So the standard commercial punch card, uh, when these were in regular use, held 80 characters per sheet, which equates to 80 bytes of information. That is not a lot by today's standards. My cell phone, for example, uh, has 128 gigabytes of storage, which would be 128 billion bytes, or 1.6 billion of these punch cards. To put that in a bit more perspective, if I just kind of had stacks of these cards all around my house, if I wanted to just take my phone data, put it on punch cards, and then, you know, keep it in my house, the volume of those cards would be the equivalent of 154,000 cubic feet, or enough to fill my 2,000 square foot home floor to ceiling about 10 times over. So that is not super practical. So what can we actually do? Uh, if you look at it the other way, let's say I'm willing to designate a single room in my home, let's say a 10 foot by 10 foot, an eight foot high room. If I would just were like, okay, this is just going to be filled with data storage uh, in the form of punch cards. In that room, I could store 664 megabytes of information, roughly what you could fit on one standard CD-ROM disc. The old ones, the new ones carry much more data, but the old ones are like 750 megs. So yeah, you could have a room. You could you could have like one CD, one one album, <laughs> if you if you give up one room in your house. I thought there might be some additional hope here because I saw a bunch of stuff going through about microfilm images being incorporated into punch cards. Like one big thing is these punch cards were pretty good about for words and characters and numbers. Like you know the the holes you punch corresponded to characters of the alphabet or you know or numbers, and so. Then I saw, like, oh, people are incorporating, like, scaled-down images of different things on punch cards. Like, for example, they still are technically in use a little bit for, like, aviation. Like, old records for, like, airplane blueprints are stored on microfilm that is, like, attached to punch cards. Only the microfilm part of it is on a magnetic strip. And they basically just have, like, a tiny scale. It's literally, like, just the same image at, like, at, like one, you know... 200th scale or something and then they put it on a punch card for sorting purposes so the punch cards will be sorted through but it doesn't actually read the data off of that off that microfilm that microfilm is not paper so sadly i thought i was gonna get away with being able to store images 
you could still try and store an image by just having like the, the the basic data, but well, displaying that would be pretty tough, and it would not be worth the the space that you use up for it. So we're a little bit limited on how much data we can store to some pretty early computer type stuff. But let's let's pause there and go on to the second problem of doing stuff with said data. Because without electronics or even electricity, how would our computer even function? And what's cool is that some of these earliest computers were entirely analog. The first real computer was Charles Babbage's Difference Engine, designed built in 1822, which is way further back than I thought it was for this kind of thing. It also used punch cards to perform basic arithmetic functions. So the way computers worked before modern days was not like, oh, hey, you have bytes of information and then they get manipulated and stored and transformed through different programs and things to do kind of whatever you want. Early computers were really task-oriented. So like basic math functions from like this difference engine would really be accomplished by effectively gear ratios is how they mostly functioned. So if you were saying multiplying a number by two, your punch card would tell the machine which kind of levers to turn, and it would basically take your input number, the number you're multiplying by two, and attach it to the number two gear, and it would be a two-to-one ratio. So every time the thing, the first one spins, the other one would spin twice, and then it would output how many times the second thing spun to give you the two-to-one. And they, you can accomplish adding, multiplying, subtracting, dividing through kind of permeations of those gear ratios. So that's kind of what Charles Babbage's difference engine is. And it's good, it's cool and good to have basic math functions like that done. Like they are, that is helpful to do. One of the big things that these computers were used for in the, in, uh, at this time was like creating multiplication tables was like a tedious task. They would hire people literally known, like the, the job title was literally calculator um, for people to do all these basic math functions. So being able to have a computer do that is pretty cool. But even these mechanical computers could do some pretty impressive types of math. My favorite that, that I got excited about was the, the mechanical integrator, where you can have a computer that entirely, you know, runs on gears and mechanics do, like, integration. So for those of you that weren't super, so lucky enough to, to, be, to be driven through a math or engineering-related college course, I'm going to briefly, very briefly explain what integration is so that, that everything else makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> it's just calculus. It's calculus. Yeah, it's calculus. Um, and basically, the, the idea behind an integral is you are trying to... Um, what's the best way? I'm, I'm good trying start. To the best that was a good start. <laughs> yeah, it's a good start. It's <laughs> <laughs> it is a... <laughs> yeah, it's uh that pretty much explains how my understanding of inter- integrals remains to this day. <laughs> yeah. It's the idea of an integral is that you want to follow something and it's changing over time and you want to add up the end result of that. So the the common example is a car moving. So if a car is moving and it's changing speed all throughout how fast it's driving, you want to know how far the car has gone based on what speed it went at each time. And it's not super simple because if this car is going, you know, 10 miles an hour and accelerates to 20, then back down to five, then up to 50, it's really hard to just do math, like, you know, to just multiply out, okay, went this fast for this long by hand to figure out where that was going uh, to find out exactly how far that car went. So really the, the basis behind what it's trying to do is, okay, for every second that the car was going this speed, it went it added this much distance to how far the car went. So the way they do this mechanically is you have, lying flat, you have one big disk 
that's spinning at a constant velocity. On top of that disc, on a rod, is a vertical gear sit on, that will rest on top of the big disc and will spin as the disc spins around. So it'll be like, if it's on like the left side of the circle, as it spins around, it'll kind of, it'll rotate itself around the rod. Let me know when it doesn't make sense, because like it's, it's really hard to do this without a picture. But the concept is, if your little wheel that's riding on the big disc is close to the center, it's spinning slower than if it was all the way on the outside of the disc. So if it's at the edge of the disc, more of the disc is going underneath it per second than if it's close to the middle. If it's in the middle, of course, there's no rotation happening at all. It stays put, and the maximum speed's on the outside. So your distance from the center of the disc is basically your y-axis on the graph of your integral. So the, it moves back and forth along the disc equal to, say, the speed of the car, and you can vary how fast it's going at any given second, and it's almost real-time adding up. It's real-time adding up how far it's gone by spinning on this disc. It's pretty cool. Look up a mechanical integrator, and that one is actually quite handy because that one is actually something that humans can't do very easily without machines. So basically, you can do helpful computer functions with a paper computer without having any electronics at all. Can you make the gears and stuff to make your machine run with paper? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I've seen a bunch of neat origami methods to make some pretty fancy shapes for gears and things that we could use. But also, if you just have, like, a thick, fair, like, paper stock and you make, like, you know, some good triangles and, and, and decent shapes out of that, paper is pretty, can get pretty sturdy. I, I'd also say that, like, technically cardboard is paper, basically. You know, like... It's funny, I have written down cardboard is also technically paper here, and I was like, I'll bring this up if I need it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought it up for you. Yeah, so, like, you could make gears out of cardboard and they would function. Like, it might not be the best, but they would definitely function, which means you could definitely build this machine. But, yeah, if you're comparing it to, like, more more modern punch card computers, later punch, bar, punch card computers, like um, the automatic computing engine, if you've ever seen the film uh, Imitation Game, this was one of the first, like, general, like, programmable computers they use this in world war ii to crack nazi ciphers so like a really cool technical achievement um and so i was seeing if we could get like what that computing speed was if we could get into that realm of processing power the problem is is that at that point in the game they were using more electronics and the big thing was reading the data so they had all these punch cards going in very quickly and the way the data was read by the punch cards was no longer anything mechanical it was the holes in the punch cards were read by shedding light through them. And then on the other side of the card, between the, it would be like the light, then hits the card, and then behind that would be um, photosensitive electric sensors. And those sensors would detect if there's light or not coming in, and those would be the ones and zeros for your binary system. There's no photosensitive paper that works at a fast enough rate to make a computer function. So we're kind of, we can't go to that level of processing and data speed, which is a little bit sad. But we can still do stuff with the analog. And so basically, we got that working. Last bit is powering up your machine. And we're lucky at the original difference engine created by Charles Babbage back in 1822 that was doing these basic calculations was actually powered by cranking a handle. Uh, it had no, no other power source or anything else. You just crank the handle and it did math for you. So theoretically, a single person could power a computer. The question is then, how fast does your computer... Um, not how fast your computer work, but... Is the paper computer 
harder to get going than like a typical computer. And by that, my concern was kind of friction. Friction is our biggest enemy. Like, even though we have this nice geared up machine and all these moving bits and things, when they're metal, they work together nice and clean. And I imagine paper cardboard system is going to be a bit harder to manipulate. So I looked at it, the coefficient of friction of like steel to steel, that is, quote unquote, lubricated and greasy, according to the where the data I found. Uh, that coefficient of friction is 0.16. Paper to paper is somewhere around 0.5. So assuming everything else is the same, we'll need about three times, we'll need to overcome three times the frictional force on our paper computer compared to a metal machine. They didn't have a lubricated paper thing? <laughs> uh, no, they didn't even have paper to paper. They had paper to like, they had like paper to iron and then they had like paper to wood. And I, I took the paper to wood as paper to paper because they, they're like, no one tested. No one's rubbing two pieces of paper together being like, hmm, this is important information. I'm putting lube in between. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can lube your, your, I don't know if you can lube up your uh, paper machine without it having other side effects. <laughs> so there's that. And then another aspect to consider is that our paper machine may very well up being a, be a good bit bigger than our metal counterpart because it's tougher to make components as precise as metal ones with paper. In fact, um, Charles Babbage had a kind of a tough time over in 1822 because he had all these cool ideas for his computer. And then a lot of like the technology of the day for how precise he wanted his instruments did not keep up with his ideas. So like he built one, he built the basic one that worked. And then like, he was like, okay, now I want to make it six times as good. And they're like, nobody can build this. And he's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but say our machines even ends up being twice as big. Basically, that translates to having twice as much area in contact, causing, you know, additional further friction. But if we're comparing it to a hand crank, I think it's not a problem to make up this difference if you're saying, you know, use pedal power. You know, like, bike, you know, get a, get a, make yourself a nice cardboard Paper bike, bike seat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with some, uh, with some pedals. And I think you can make up the difference from hand cranking to pedal power in order to do your fancy math integration. So... There you have it. You can you can build a paper computer. You can do it at home if you want to. Have you built prototypes? Yeah, I didn't build a pro. I did not build my prototype for this one either. I I didn't really get the memo that we we're supposed to do that. Luckily, Ben did his, so we're we're okay on as a, as a whole. <laughs> yes, I did. Just give me several hours. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's my that's my foray into to old computing, which was. Both fun and incredibly frustrating because I would do a lot of research about some types of computers and then find out it had a bunch of electric bits in it. And I got very frustrated. <laughs> Who would have thought they'd put electricity in computers? But it's not that they, it's not, I'm not mad that we're using electrical stuff. It just, they don't bother to mention when they start using it. <laughs> I, I do want to briefly say, by the way, that um, I hadn't mentioned it at the time, but we actually, we postponed this recording once because Marcus chatted and he was like, so, guys, this might not be more complicated than I expected. Now, in my mind, I was like, dude, you're trying to do computers out of paper. How complicated do you think it would be? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, of course it's complicated. They're computers. Well, the, the thing, what, what happened, what, what, like I said, what happened was, was I knew they had analog computers. I knew they had paper punch cards already that they used to function them. And I thought it was all more mechanical. I didn't realize how much they mixed the streams and especially with like the, the more popular and famous ones. And so it was like, I had a whole bunch of data about like how many cards per second they could read and that would translate to this kind of processing power and all this fun stuff. It was then, all entirely useless to you actually. Yeah, that yeah. one. <laughs> no, I get it. It was just really funny at the time. It was like, Hey guys, turns out this is complicated. 
I was like two thirds of the way through my answer too. I was like, I was like, oh man, this is going smoothly. And I'm like, wait, wait, oh, 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 no, oh, oh, oh no. no, oh no. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, what did you, t- give us? Tell us about your prototype. Yeah. So what I did, I spoiler alert, I didn't make a prototype either. What? <laughs> so when when we started thinking about this, the first well, maybe the first thing, but very early on, I realized if we're making everything out of paper, we're going to need a lot of paper, and that's why I started asking myself, can you make paper if all you have is paper? So I tried to figure that out. Can we manufacture paper? And if so, how quickly can we do it? And will it be enough support doing these kinds of fancy computers and planes they want to make? So what really is paper? I know Chris kind of already mentioned it briefly, but the basic idea, right, is that you take something made out of fibers. Generally for paper, this will be trees, you know, and then break that up into like a suspension of those fibers in water, usually. Flatten that out, dry it out into a sheet, press it real flat so it's you know, all the liquid's out and it's nice and flat and papery. So really there's two steps to this process, right? You have to make the suspension of, of the wood, which is called the pulp. And then you have to flatten and dry it out. So in terms of making the pulp, there's two ways you can do it. Um, you can either do it mechanically, which is you put your wood into you generally water and just kind of smash it up until it's pulp. That seems pretty doable. We can do that. Just, Beat it to a pulp. Yeah, just take a rock and hit your wood in some water, and then there you go. Easy. The other one that's used more commonly uh, at this point is a chemical process called the craft process, where you basically boil um, your wood in like a strong alkali, like sodium sulfide or sodium hydroxide. This isn't going to work for many reasons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Such as? Uh, so... As far as I can tell, there aren't any, like, naturally occurring alkalis you can use that are, like, strong enough to use for this. And I also don't know how you would boil them in a non, you know, man-made container of any kind. A paper pot? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to work to put over fire. <laughs> Something's telling me that paper pot isn't going to, you know, go all that well. <laughs> but even when we're doing this mechanical process, we're smashing it up, we still do have to, you know, have something to put water in to put our, our wood in. And I want to answer, can we make that out of paper? Uh, so is there waterproof paper that we could use to, you know, put water and stuff in to, to, to do this? And technically, yes, there is waterproof paper, kind of. The most common way to do it is just take regular paper and put some kind of coating on it. Obviously, these are all man-made. They're all like various kinds of chemicals. So that's not going to work. And I was trying to find any paper that's just on its own waterproof. I did find some. The one I found particularly, this is one called Terra Slate which is advertised as the most durable paper on the planet. It's really cool. It's like fully waterproof. You can literally, you know, use it underwater. They have videos on their website of it going through like a commercial dishwasher and coming out fine and, you know, of people trying to tear it in half and just not being able to. It is really cool. The problem is it is synthetic paper. It is paper made out of plastic. They take, you know, recyclable chunks of plastic basically and break those down into their fibers and turn them into a film that they then you know spray out real flat you couldn't break this paper if you were ten thousand years of natural decay (laughs) exactly right you know uh it doesn't seem great for the environment but who knows they say it's recyclable i don't really trust them but they did also say their paper can go through a dishwasher and that one was true so maybe they're fine i don't know well, it's plastic. It's got to be recyclable. It's literally just, it's already recyclable. You, you, that is true. You can turn it into more plastic paper at the very least. But obviously we can't do this because we can't make plastic because that's not made out of, that's, yeah, that's not paper. 
you know. So long story short, we cannot have a waterproof paper. We're going to have to find a natural pool of water or something we can use to beat up our wood, which you're already starting to see the part of the problem here. If that's the case, there is going to be a limited number of places we can even make paper, which is going to put some constraints on our paper production. But say we do that, say we have our pulp, and we actually need to turn that pulp into the paper itself. How we do that now uh, is generally using machines. Uh, specifically, the, the style of machine is one called a, I think it's Fordrenier machine. It's named for the, the two English brothers who invented it in the start of the 19th century. Where basically it's, uh, you feed in the pulp through like a, a trough. It's spread over a, a wire mesh conveyor belt and moved through this shaken and like blow dried and things like that to get all the water out into a mat of fibers that's then moved through a series of rollers to flatten it and fully dry it into, you know, sheets of paper. And these things are actually insane. They can go upwards of 40 miles per hour, the rate the paper's going through it. It's it's nuts. I actually saw when I was younger, I went to the um, the Mint in, I think it's in Dallas, back when I lived in Texas, and they had these, you know, the giant paper rollers, and they're, they're insane. If you ever get a chance to see them, they're actually pretty cool. We obviously cannot make a machine like that. We've talked about this. It's just not going to work out very well with paper as our raw material. So we just need a way to dry out and flatten our pulp. Is there anything we can use as a mesh? The answer is not really. I tried to figure out a way you could use maybe a, you know, sea sponge or something. But I don't think you're going to be able to get something. You need a very fine mesh that will actually stay flat as this is happening. And I couldn't find anything natural that was going to be a fine enough mesh where it wouldn't just, you know, slide through as the pulp. So can you do it without a mesh? And the answer is kind of, although my paper's going to kind of suck. I found some, you know, science lab at home kind of things for kids to make their own paper. And what you do with those is usually get a sheet of cloth and put that between, you know, some popsicle sticks or something to suspend it. And then pour your pulp on that and let the water sort of drain away that way. We can kind of do that because you can make paper out of cloth. So conceivably we can make a sheet of, you know, clothy paper that we can drain our more papery paper out on. And then, I don't know, staple it to some trees and just let it hang out in the sun for a while. (laughs) It will technically work and make something that is technically paper that is not very good. And yeah, you just let it hang out for a few days in the sun until it's paper. And there you go. You have technically made paper. It's like, this is basically that nano paper you were talking about, Chris. We're, we're in good shape. Yeah, it's exactly the same. There are some problems here, um, which is that it's very slow and the paper will suck. So I don't think we're going to be able to have that much paper or that it'll be very good, which obviously puts a bit of a damper on our whole make everything out of paper plan. But it's technically possible. There is one step in the process I haven't mentioned yet. Which is, obviously we need wood for this, so uh, can we cut down a tree? Because you can't make an axe or a saw out of paper. That's not, that's just not going to (laughs) work. I don't care how sturdy of cardboard you make, you can't cut down a tree with a cardboard axe or saw. This is going to complicate things. Technically, you can probably just slam a rock into a tree over and over and over and eventually take it down. Yeah, Minecraft it. Yeah. You just, you just hit the tree. You just punch the tree until you have resources. Yeah. Obviously, doesn't seem very effective. Technically, maybe eventually would work. I did see two YouTube videos about taking down a tree without any tools. Uh, the first involved rhythmically pushing the tree back and forth, sort of as it, at its like resonance frequency, basically, until it bent enough to crack and fall over. 
but that's only worked on old dead trees, which would make pretty shitty paper. And also, even in this video showing how it would work, took them three tries to find a tree that it was old and dead enough to work on. So I don't think it's going to be a great solution for us. The second one did work better, but the way you do it is you find a tree, set a small fire at the base of the tree, and then wrap clay around the trunk just at the top of the flames so that it doesn't just burn the tree down. And I will say, in the video, this did actually work. I think it took quite a long time. It was not a time lapse or anything. He just kind of cut to the point where it had burned enough to push the tree down. But it did technically work, um, which is really better than I expected. Does not seem particularly safe or, once again, particularly easy to do at a, you know, high rate, I guess. But I mean, we don't really need the whole tree we could just burn most of the tree down and just get what's left <laughs> so i was thinking about that the problem is i'm pretty sure that is going to heavily damage the uh the fibers of the tree so you probably do need reasonably intact wood for this to work i don't think you can just use like charcoal to make paper don't think that works that just smoking the bear coming by while you're doing this it's like dude it's like crying yeah seriously <laughs> Like, seriously? Like, I was, I've been going on about, like, people throwing cigarette butts out, and you're doing this? Right. You're actively lighting trees on fire? So, technically, yes, we can cut down trees. It's just not very good, and not very safe, and not very effective. So, in summary, can we make paper? At a very technical level, yes, we can technically make paper. But it's not going to be great, and it's not going to be very much of it, and it's not going to happen quickly. Um, so... We're not going to make many things, I guess, is the overall takeaway from my answer. If we can only make... We are we are a terrible engineering company. We are, <laughs> paper engineering is not going to succeed. We really are. We, we have made a bad airplane, yeah. a bad computer, and bad paper. Um, so yeah, don't make things out of paper. Use the other stuff. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> and with that roaring success, I think it's time for us to move on to our would you rather question. Chris. Yes. Would you rather your only mode of transportation be a donkey or a giraffe? Donkey or a giraffe? Hmm. Hmm. How well trained is your giraffe? Uh, let's say they, they are well trained. Evenly like trained. Okay. Yeah, evenly trained. They're, they both obey like horses, I guess. Okay. My gut reaction is that a, a giraffe is way cooler. I agree with that statement. That is true. <laughs> Like what? Why? Why would you choose a donkey? Um, donkey can fit in more spaces and is less um, less. What the fuck? This dude has a giraffe. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like it's easier to like maintain a donkey, judging by the fact that a lot more donkeys are maintained than giraffes in the world. I mean, you're not gonna really need to fit into tight spaces very often. What about if you're like you have to like go under an underpass or an overpass? You don't go under underpasses. I mean, they can duck down their necks. Right, they can just lower their head. Can they do it while like moving? Are they stable enough for that? They're not super good at it. They're, it's pretty awkward for them to take a drink of water. I don't know. I'm picturing it. I feel like they can walk with their heads lowered. Can a giraffe walk with its? How do you even Google that? Walk with its neck down? <laughs> like what? <laughs> it's like talking about like a, like a convertible. Well, what's the shoulder height of a giraffe? Is the other question. Hmm, that's a good point. Shoulder height, 13 to 15 feet. Oh, so here's a problem. I'm, I'm looking at 
an article entitled The Role of the Neck in the Movements of the Giraffe from the Journal of Mammalogy, uh, 1962, apparently. Where basically, when a giraffe moves, when it's taking a stride, the neck moves forward with like the forward motion to move its center of gravity forward. And at the end of the stride, it moves the neck backwards to decrease its forward momentum and help keep its balance. So it may actually not be able to like consistently move forward with its neck lowered. And that height is an issue with bridges. Mm-hmm. With underpasses. Yeah, it's like 11 feet is like the standard, like it's like a car like for like most parkways or whatever. <laughs> the standard height of a giraffe. I was like, wait, wait who decided this? <laughs> <laughs> well, Google, because that's what was word I'm taking for it. So I guess it depends on if you live like, I mean, you're not going to be going on the highway with these, are you? No. But also that like those those height relates to like, that's what cars are supposed to be able to get under like power lines and signs and anything else that might like trees and stuff i guess like you can there it's not going to be a consistent problem it's like you're not gonna be able to go places with your giraffe but there will be some there will be i think fairly frequent occurrences of giraffe too big i mean i think you'll be able to go most places i mean it's like it basically be like a truck like a truck you can't go in every single road now it says your only mode of transportation i'm assuming we're not going to count this as like even inside no i was thinking no, like yeah, replacing no. a vehicle Right, yeah. yeah, definitely. You actually might run into trouble with telephone power lines because it looks like when I Googled standard giraffe height, I'm getting 16 and 19 feet for a male adult giraffe and 14 to 17 for a female. And the minimum, so it's not necessarily always, but the minimum ground clearance for power lines is 12 feet over sidewalks. And for telephone poles, it's only like nine and a half, 15 and a half for roadways. So you could get into trouble with power and phone lines giraffes are significantly faster than donkeys that's what i'm checking right now i'm not sure if it's true i think it is true i just looked up the max speed and the walk speed so for a donkey a walk speed is 3.5 miles per hour according to (laughs) 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 animals.mom.com um and a giraffe is giraffe's walk speed is 10 miles per hour sorry what was the donkey walk speed Three and a half. Okay. Because donkeys can run, according also according to animals.mom.com, <laughs> slash average speed donkeys, that slash 7802, an Asiatic wild ass can gallop as fast as 43 miles an hour, but the speed of domesticated donkeys will vary according to size, fits, motivation, with the top speed reaching 40. Most donkeys will run much slower, averaging 30 to 35. So the speeds are comparable. See, I just, I just Googled donkey speed and 15 miles per hour came up. Very confusingly, I'm on the same article as Marcus, but mine's from animals.mom.com slash fastdonkey6161. But it's all the same information. <laughs> I mean, don- donkeys can trot for eight to, at eight to nine miles per hour. So we'll say that's their like sustainable pace. Yeah, I think donkeys, I would say donkeys slightly slower, but probably has a bit more endurance. I imagine both of these are going to be like walking for most of your trip. Like they're not going to sustain a, a run. Yeah, no, we're going the eight, the 10, ten miles an hour for the for the giraffe. I think is what I saw for a uh, like consistent walking speed. Yeah. Uh, also from animals.mom.com, I am seeing six, uh, around ten miles per hour. Yeah, but the donkey is like, like how how fast do we walk? Does like a human walk? Um, it's around that actually. Yeah, three to four miles per hour. <laughs> yeah, it's like the same as a donkey. 
But I mean, if they can trot eight to nine, that is somewhat faster. That's like a slow bike. Yeah, but how long can they sustain that? Uh, it is unclear from animals.mom.com. But it does say <laughs> it is more comfortable for a donkey than gallop or canter, and he can maintain it for a much longer period of time without tiring. So a reasonable amount of time, I would guess. At least in a time to like go to the grocery store or something. Okay. So here's the other here's my question now. My new my new question to add to this conversation. You can build a pretty cool persona around being the guy who rides either a donkey or a giraffe around. But you will always be overshadowed by the giraffe. Both literally and you know, metaphorically. Like, you can be, you know, if you ride the giraffe around if you ride a giraffe around, you are the dude who rides the giraffe. The giraffe is the is like the, the capital G giraffe. If you ride a donkey around, you can you can be a quirky individual who happens to ride a donkey and not be the guy who rides a donkey around. So it depends on if you want to do something else with your life. If you want to be known, if you want to, I guess if you're more ambitious and you want to have, want to be known for something other than the donkey. Which I don't, which I'm still leaning towards giraffe, but I figured I'd bring that in the conversation. I mean, I do still think it's, the donkey is still pretty overshadowing. It's less overshadowing, but it is still overshadowing. Yeah, but donkey thing is a normal thing. A donkey is a normal thing to ride. Not in like a city or like the suburbs. It depends on where you if are. If I was riding a donkey in New York City, I'd be like, a dude rode a donkey in New York City. That's weird. And I would talk about it for like a month. If I saw a dude riding a giraffe in New York City, I would not shut up about it until I died. No, I think if you saw someone riding a donkey in New York City, you'd be like, hey, that's together as a donkey. As opposed to, hey, that's together as a giraffe. Well, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't look at the guy riding a donkey and say, hey, that's a guy that rides a giraffe. Right, but like <laughs> would you would be, he would be <laughs> He's when, riding you, a donkey, when you refer to that guy... You'd refer to him as the guy that rides the donkey. That's what he's known for. Yes, no, you, you, it's going to be hard to overcome either, but it's you have a chance with the donkey. You don't have a chance with the giraffe. I suppose. I don't know. I'm trying to make. I'm trying to come up with any donkey arguments because I'm still leaning very heavily towards giraffe. I feel I'm a little concerned about the uh, ergonomics of the giraffe personally, so I might be leaning towards donkey. It'd be a little difficult to mount the giraffe. You'd have it to would. have like a platform. That seems very inconvenient to me. Or, I mean, maybe the giraffe, like, will bend down for you and let you up. The, the giraffe the giraffe puts its head on the ground, and you and you, and you you get up on the top of the neck, and then it lifts its head up, and you slide down to the shoulder. <laughs> this seems... This seems... Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> also, how long are the giraffe's legs? Can a giraffe just, like, step over cars? I don't... Oh, yeah. Can they? Oh, yeah. I, I just had the giraffe shoulder height was, like... Giraffe shoulder height. Giraffe's legs are about six feet long. That goes over a car. Yeah, I guess so. Do they have the flexibility to go over a car? Maybe not. I don't know. I still think I'm leaning towards giraffe. It's just way cooler. The clearance thing is an issue, but I think you can just know which roads to avoid and you'll be fine. I will say on that point, though, a giraffe will cause more traffic problems than a donkey. <laughs> Again, for the reason of you see you drive by and a guy's riding a donkey down the street. You're like, huh, that guy's riding a donkey. You, you see a guy riding a giraffe, like, holy shit, that's a giraffe. <laughs> but I'm going giraffe. You're going giraffe? I think I'm going to go donkey. I just, I don't know. I feel like it's going to cause too many complications. Like, if I was going down to CVS, I want to have to, like, get my giraffe to bend over so I can get on and then go all the way back up and then, like, duck under the power line. There's just a lot going on there for a simple thing, right? Just hop on the donkey, amble on over, grab your twix or whatever i don't know what i'm going to cbs for <laughs> apparently a twix <laughs> at home it's easy yeah i 
I'm I'm in the I'm in the spot where I know in my heart of hearts it has to be the draft. Like if I was given the options between these two, regardless of the what's better or practical or makes sense, you can't say no to the giraffe. And I feel like if I did that, I would be de- being dishonest with myself. So I'm gonna go with the giraffe. And yeah, that'll do it. Do it. Do it for that. If you are currently on your giraffe riding home and you're like, oh wow, can't believe that some other, someone else picked the giraffe too. That's pretty cool. I want to give them money for some reason. Um, you can do that. Uh, you can go to www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals uh, and become a patron, one of our good absurd hypotheticals, and uh, for just $1 a month. And that gives you access to all our bonus content that we release each month for sp- exclusively for the Patreon members. So go do that. Uh, if you have thought of a cool giraffe-related question that you want us to answer or any other hypothetical question that you wanted to answer or think we got something really wrong get in touch with us um if you're on youtube it's really easy to just leave a comment below or absurd hypotheticals at gmail.com would be the next best bet if you're listening on a podcast platform uh and send us your questions comments complaints whatever you want to do send it our way we're happy to get them happy to read them um and who knows maybe it becomes part of the show you'll find out your complaint your complaint will become part of the show yeah and if you're not complaining on the show and you enjoy the show and not, not, this, this spot is not for complaints, is leaving reviews. You don't put complaints there, only nice things. You put nice things in the reviews, you put complaints in the email. So nice things, go in the review. If you enjoy the show, let the internet know. Just let your friends and family know is good too. Way to spread the word, just word of mouth is a great way to grow the podcast. So do all those things. And then once you've done all those things, you can come back and join us next week where we answer the following question. We're going to be doing a random superpower fight, and we are going to... I don't have a finish the sentence here. Chris, just cut it. Just cut it. <laughs> you don't cut it. I say the word fight. You no, you can't the cut sentence. this. And then you decided to start a, like, start a new one. I don't know. I felt like it needed more, and then I didn't have more. <laughs> the, tank, the tank was empty. Oh.